Hello there, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. I, along with co-hosts Nathan Bennett and Mari Yamaguchi, want to take a moment to acknowledge that the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic has created unprecedented challenges to meetings, businesses, and life for many of us across the world. While we're taking a hiatus in recording more episodes this season to respect the health and well-being of our colleagues and guests, we hope you take a moment to listen to these previously recorded but new episodes. As we navigate a new normal from how we engage with each other to how we do business, our goal is to make sure that you continue to find moments of information in our episodes that you can apply today. We hope that you, your families, friends, and colleagues are staying healthy and safe, and please enjoy the next episode of Take a Moment. Hello, this is producer Josh Reed. And this is one of your hosts, Nathan Bennett. And today we had a chance to sit down with one of the smartest people that I've actually had the privilege of knowing and having a conversation with, Randy Carter, the marketing content director here at Genesis. This uh, is such a fun conversation because if you've ever met one of those people that, you know, three minutes into meeting them and uh, having a conversation with them, you find yourself like leaning forward into what they're talking about because they're just so smart and so articulate and so passionate. There are a lot of people who are smart. Uh, there are a lot of people who are smart and articulate, but then to combine that with this passion that Randy has for uh, technology, for life, for learning, for customer experience, for end user experiences was an incredible, incredible conversation. Uh, there, it's impossible to listen to Randy talk about really anything and not to get excited about that thing. Yes. Randy Carter was one of the original people to influence the creation, design, implementation of what is now Genesis Cloud. Back then it was called Pure Cloud, and it is an exciting story of origins. Not only does he know the technology, not only was he instrumental in the help and the implementation of Genesis Cloud, but he knows the product and is passionate about it. He mm -hmm. can talk about it for hours and then he can also sit down and help any individual who needs any information regarding the, the products themselves. Absolutely. He has got an encyclopedic knowledge yes, of yes. this product and uh, it's, it's a little intimidating at first. Uh, to be with somebody who is that knowledgeable yep. about so many things, but he's also one of those people who has an incredible knack for making complex ideas very simple, very understandable yes. uh, to folks like me. So we hope you love this episode as much as we love the conversation, and we hope you take a moment with us. Randy, I'm going to start with some hard-hitting questions to get us started off. So brace yourself. I know you're a fan of many things sci-fi, and uh, I know that you share a geekdom with many of us. Can you talk about your favorite sort of sci-fi epic story, if it's you know anything from Star Wars to Doctor Who to Lord of the Rings? Like, What's your go-to sci-fi story? I think the thing that I, I probably have read the most pages on is probably the expanse which is this it was a sci-fi series it, they just did their fourth season got dropped on on amazon fantastic world building it was originally as i understand it was actually originally written to be a game that these two guys came up with this whole pitch to develop a, a whole digital world 
basically, and have a game in it. And they couldn't get it picked up as that. So they had all this stuff written down. So they just started cranking out novels. So what's the general premise? It's, yeah, what is it that appeals to you about that? Yeah. Too? It's like all science fiction. There's a huge amount of, you know, there, there's the whole attraction of it's talking about the future and in different ways of solving problems. But it really is also about people. And I think one of the things that's really interesting to me about my career is how much joy I have gotten in my career out of trying to figure out how to take technology and make it serve people, make it really easy and, and fun, really, to use as a person. And, and uh, so that's why I, I really love science fiction, because it's, it's fun. It's escapism. It's a way to not have all that, uh, that, that baggage of, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. You know? <laughs> the world is on fire. <laughs> right, right, right. Please run but I can explore that and possibly, you know, learn some things from it. One of the things that you and I have had conversations on has been around service design and technology and how at the heart and root of it is the human. Yeah, I, I, I was at a, a session at a conference last summer and the, the speaker pulled out this book, um, The Field Guide to Understanding Human Error. And I just about fell out of my chair. There's this whole area of academics I had no idea exists. And I read like a maniac. And it turns out there's this whole academic field that studies why human beings screw up. And it turns out that they have this whole thing they talk about, about first causes and second causes. First cause would be Timmy pushed the wrong button because Timmy made a mistake. The second cause is why did Timmy push the wrong button? And that's really so much more interesting because when you think about the big picture, almost Nobody really wants to make a mistake. We all want to do the right thing. Uh, so a lot of what, especially in software design, we try to do is to build the system to where it's always easier to do the right thing than it is to do the wrong thing. And you could enumerate a whole list of things why Timmy pushed the wrong button. You know, he didn't, he didn't know it was the wrong button. He, we didn't train him. The right button was too far away to reach, so he pushed the wrong button instead. He didn't have permission to push the right button. He only had permission he to push the wrong button. The power. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. And you could go on and on and on with this. There's all kinds of great reasons for it. And once you start to grapple with that, you realize that you can actually fix a lot of that stuff in the world if you want to. You have this knack of boiling down very complex ideas to a very uh, simple message. And I'm sure that's come in handy in our conversations when you've had to try and explain something to me. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I do love about you is not only your vast intelligence, but your uh, passion for what you do and why you do it. And I'm interested if you could kind of give us a, a, a short journey about how you got to where you are today and where your love of design came from and how you've been mm. able to apply it in your career and in your life. I was one of those kids that always drew all kinds of things on their notebooks, all kinds of things that I wanted to build and try, I, you know, very early on, I, just weird things I would try to do at home. And, and I was never, I, I was very fortunate. Both my parents were technologists. Uh, my mom was a, uh, a systems analyst and a CPA. <laughs> my dad was an engineer and a very early programmer. He worked on the Saturn V in Huntsville. When I was five years old, I remember going to kindergarten and they would fire off those the test stand of the rockets for that. And all our pencils would roll out the desk. It wow. shook the entire valley. So kind of grew up in this family where technology was just one of those things that it was, you just tried to figure it out and you tried to figure out how to do something better all the time. So, you know, I, I completely plundered my dad's workshop. 
all kinds of tools. And I felt, you know, for many years, I was giving him tools for every holiday to make up for the fact that I had lost, that you lost <laughs> so many things. Yeah, yeah. Tools. But, uh, but yeah, so I always wanted to design things. I thought engineers designed things. So I went off to college to become a materials engineer. And I had a good friend who was in this program called industrial design. And he kept complaining about all these awful, awful uh, assignments he was getting. Like he had to build a model of the inside of a store and figure out where to put all the aisles in the store, you know, so that you get good circulation and things like that. And I'm looking at my two eight foot long tables completely covered in physics homework one night. And I'm thinking maybe this is, I just don't like math this much. Yeah, I'm good at it, but this isn't my life. I don't want to be doing equations. And so he transferred out. Uh, I transferred in and it was like coming home. Really? What felt right about it? The people that in the program, the professors and the way that they approached problems, the way that people talked, and they really, really had all these fantastic arguments about how to make something better. And nobody got offended in these crits about why did you paint it green? You'd ask, why did you paint it green? And then you'd talk about what other colors would work better than green or maybe the wrong greener, but nobody would go crying. It was just it's so much fun. And, and I've been doing it my whole career. I've just been blessed, really, really blessed. I found the thing that I really wanted to do early on, and then I ended up doing it my whole life. It's been great. And I'm still doing it. What so. are some of those moments or those problems that you've solved that you're most proud of? Every place that I've been, we've worked very hard on solving really interesting problems. And as long as it's really about helping somebody have a better life, it's something that I feel like I can be proud of at the end of the day. It mm -hmm. may not be the most dramatic thing in the world, but if I can make somebody's job better, that's great. I've designed surgical instruments. I did pacemaker programmers early on for Medtronic. I did, I've won uh, national awards from Business Week, but none of that makes me as happy as, as actually seeing somebody doing a test of something and seeing somebody just light up because they get it. They understand it. And the thing is so much easier than it was before they, before we, we started messing with it. The job I had before the startup that became PureCloud was a, a company at North Carolina State University and Centennial Campus that did online homework systems. And we were working on this really fascinating problem of trying to build this kind of hierarchical tree of mathematical knowledge so that we could ask students questions and figure out where they were on the tree. And then once we found something that they could not answer, we would understand how to go back up the branches and find the pieces that maybe they weren't understanding that they needed to solve the problem. And being able to just have really, really great conversations with mathematicians about these concepts and trying to map them out in the real world, but then try to take all that and put it onto a screen where somebody could understand, ah, oh, this is a network, it's a mesh of things, and they're all, a lot of them touch each other, and sometimes in unexpected ways. And having that make sense to a student so that they answer the question and we can tell them, okay, we think you probably need to go back here to really be able to answer this question. Do you want to try that? And let them buy in. It was really great. Let them have that light bulb moment. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. And again, it goes back to that empowerment for them, right? Because now they've gone off and yeah. did it themselves. And now they know what they have to do the next time around. They come to something like a problem or an issue like that. Yeah. yeah. Learned a lot from that. I Just being with teachers and talking to a lot of them about their different strategies of teaching students 
And one of the things, especially at university level, that's really, really important is you have to force them into failure, or at least most of them. There are some people who really genuinely don't seem to fail, mm. which is completely weird to me. <laughs> I fail all the time. <laughs> so, but there are a lot of students, they won't really work hard on something until they feel like they're not getting it. Mm -hmm. and, and how important that moment is to getting, and then the next step. And it's really a lot like what we do in marketing with the call to action. You know, we try to make people aware that there's a problem and it's a, it's a serious problem. And you just haven't thought about it that much, but now that we're pointing it out to you, well, crap, that's, that's really painful. Why am I doing that? Or why are we doing that? And then offering a solution. Hmm. So one of the things that I remember you saying to me in the first, you know, couple of months after we started working together was, I just thought about it because you sort of referenced your philosophy of building things is really to improve someone's quality of life or to make their job easier. And one of the things that you said to me, and I'll probably butcher the quote, but it was oh a boy. great, it was a great <laughs> like sort of marketing tagline. I'm surprised it, came, it stuck with you. It so, did, <laughs> so it was good. It was a very precise bit of marketing. That I'm you really curious about what so. it is now. So. No, but you said we were talking about how specifically Genesis products are designed and why they're designed that way. And you mm -hmm. said, because helping people shouldn't be hard work. Yeah, it should be a great job. Mm -hmm. I, I think what, you know, especially when you're building business software, people have to use this software. They get paid to use this software and they get paid to put up with the software too. And you think about all of the things that a human being could be doing with their life. Frustrating them with the tools that they're having to use is probably there's a special place in hell for that. Especially uh, when you're having to spend so much of your day at work. Right. And that's yeah. the thing. I mean, that's one of the things that we had a earlier conversation with somebody who was using one of our technologies, and she said it's so good that I don't even notice it. Yeah, I don't even know it's there. Oh uh, yeah, there. yeah. Actually, that uh, when I've coached and managed designers before. And, and I think one of the things you have to be to be a really great designer is you have to be irrationally optimistic, which is to do design right, you end up coming up with like four different ways of an approaching a problem. And then you go and you test that to see which one is the right direction. But you know you're going to have to throw away most of them. You did four, only one is going to make it through the next hoop. That has to be okay. You have to be get up in the morning and go, I'm going to throw away three concepts today, and that's a good thing. <laughs> but that's how you get the great solutions is you just work at it. And, and what's funny is by the time you force yourself to do the four different concepts, and that fourth concept a lot of times is the best one you did because you've already really thought the problem through by the time you get to that one. Right. So. Talking about great concepts, mm -hmm. and you touched on it a little bit before about the early days mm -hmm. of PureCloud. Yeah. Or Genesis Cloud. Or Genesis Cloud right. now. Or OrgSpan. <laughs> or OrgSpan. Kind of take us through that and, and, and that whole process with the design of now Genesis Cloud. It was, that was a really exciting start. I, we were very fortunate. So Don Brown was our angel investor. <laughs> and he had an idea that he came to us with and hired a really, really smart core team of people to work on this problem from the beginning. And most of us are still around in one way or another. But his, the thing he wanted to do is completely a, this, this happens all the time. People have ideas based on what they do for a living and making their own life better, which is, that's great. That's great. And his idea was as a CEO of a company, 
he and his other C-level guys would come up with the goals for the company for the year. And then for the rest of the year, people are saying, oh yeah, we're working on that. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's going to be great. But they didn't really know whether people were actually working on it. And they didn't really, there was no way to actually measure how you were doing on the goal. And then they would do it again the next year. And it, it, so it's this big fuzzy goal process that, that didn't have a good feedback mechanism. And he wanted to try to solve that. I went crazy. The first three weeks, I, I, we had this big empty space that we had rented out. I covered walls in post-it notes and sketches and timelines. And I <laughs> analyzed this problem, you know, all the different tasks that you needed to do and broke them down into user stories. And I did all the personas that we needed to satisfy and what they needed to be able to do in their jobs. And then I correlated all those against each other to figure out what were the core things that we needed to start on first. And in the meantime, the architects were doing all the really important work, which was after the first week, we could install natively on AWS, tear down and put in a whole new system in under three minutes. So we never built any version of the software that did not use the cloud. And this is back in? This was 2012. Okay. I think that within 30 days or 45 days, we had public APIs. We had a web client. We had an iOS client. And we had an Android client that all ran against that APIs that built a hierarchy of a company and had profiles for all of the people in that company that were all editable. Hmm. That's amazing That's productivity. Incredible. And Don looked at that and said, I got to get me some of that for the contact center software too. And so we, we were happy and, and probably a little bit disappointed when about two months after we started OrgSpan, there were pure cloud people starting to sit in our office hmm. uh, and they were building on top of our architecture. I mean, it's fantastic. We were doing the right things. We were solving the right problems. It's sad because you know immediately what's, you're going to get bought. You're not going to change the world as OrgSpan, but you do pivot very quickly in those environments. And you have to, we all have to be flexible in this business. And started looking at the opportunity in the contact center world and the kinds of tools that they were using. From the beginning, we thought, there's no good reason why a phone call should be different than a chat should be an email or any other kind of digital chat. They're all just conversations between people. Actually, later on, it quickly became apparent between people and systems. Right, right. <laughs> uh, like AIs and things like that. But from the beginning, the architecture is, it, under the cover, it makes no difference. The thing that holds everything together is a conversation. And the conversation can be between um, one customer and multiple agents, one customer and one agent, multiple customers that are related to each other in an agent, but it's all clustered together and held together by this notion of a conversation. And that made so many other things easier to do too. Like when we built the just the core mechanisms for being able to do things like transfers, why make them different? Transferring an email or chat or transferring a call that's all fundamentally the same thing. Well, there's no good reason that the, the, the controls should be different. I mean, you can do a warm transfer of a chat and a cold transfer of a chat just like you can a call. So that's what we did. We just said, okay, learn it once, use it everywhere. So we'll do this one time. So we spent a lot of time doing that kind of thing. That seems like one of those things that would be a natural, well, yes, of course we would do this. Why wouldn't we do this? And yet you guys sort of honed in on the problem immediately. Yeah. Through some hard work. Right. I, yeah. And that's the irrational optimism thing again. And actually, you, you, when you really, really do great interaction design, everybody looks at it and goes, well, of course, that's the only way you could have designed it. 
it has to be that way. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is, is get great pleasure out of that. When I hear that, I just, I feel like, wow, I really, really nailed it because it's not that easy to do that. It's harder to be simple sometimes, you know, I think it was, I'm going to horribly misattribute this quote, but I think it was Mark Twain (laughs) who said, sorry about the long letter. If I'd had more time, it would have been shorter. Yeah. It it takes time to To simplify. simplify. Yeah. And to clarify. Yeah. And it's a lot of planning. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing what the little scrappy thing that you started working on back in 2012 is now Genesis Cloud and is truly helping out people and businesses and making lives easier in millions of little different ways. How does it make you feel today knowing that you are part of creating something like that? I have to jump in real quick and say the part of it is really true. I did part of it. There were a lot of people involved. It was a lot of work by a lot of people. But you were part of that core team. A lot of talented UX guys, too. Right. And a lot of great arguments and conversations that led to good decision-making mm. in that. But but yeah, what am I most proud of? I, the simplicity of it. That people, when we do user testing with temps, we bring them in, we show them a two-minute video, just a little introduction to Pure Cloud that's out there on the help system. And then we start giving them tasks, and they complete them. It's just, I, you know, it's when you, I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours doing user testing over the years where you're sitting in a chair right beside somebody and you give them enough information to complete the task and you're trying so hard not to help them, but you, you ask them to do something and they just struggle. It's very disheartening to sit beside somebody who's doing that and not reach out and help them. But that's what you have to do sometimes. And our goal is like 85% or 90% success. For someone who is brand new in Pure Cloud to be able to do a lot of the fundamental tasks that people need to do. What's the sort of baseline expectation that you would think going into that before that user's test? You know, oh, if they score like a 40%, that's pretty good. 55 is nice. No, we're looking to knock it out of the park. And one of the ways we do that is we do traditionally, and I, I did some testing like this early in my career with Citibank and Chase Manhattan, where you would test like to get the confidence interval down to like some comfortable number it was like plus or minus like 5%. You have to test 29 people. But it turns out when you do that kind of testing, after the first five or six or eight people, you hear the same things again and again and again. You're just doing the test to get more data so that you can say confidently that's the problem. But you know that's the problem because all of them kept coming up with it again and again and again. So in UX, somebody had a giant aha and they said, well, maybe all this really expensive testing with lots and lots of people that take days and days and lots of analysis is beside the point. Maybe we should just test with four or five, six people and whatever they find, go fix that and then come back and do another test. And that's what we do now. It's kind of like agile thinking for software development it for design, which is let's do some testing. Let's find the things that are wrong with it. Let's hammer those nails down that are sticking up or, or pull them out and do something else instead. And then let's do it again. And then we'll do it again. And Prototype and iterate and iterate and iterate to make it better and better. Yeah. Coming from a product and a design background, how does that shape how you're, what you're doing now in marketing and product marketing? I was panicking before this to talk to you guys today, and I was- We're so intimidated. (laughs) (laughs) It's Mari. It is Mari. (laughs) It's me. She looks vicious. Yeah, I do. Yeah. 
I get it. I was making a list and, I, and I'm like, there's no, there is no difference. There's no difference between designing a chair or a drill press or a piece of surgical instrument or software or, or messaging to somebody to try to convince them to do something. It's all from one perspective or another, it's really fundamentally the same thing. You're trying to understand the person, uh, what, what they need to be successful and figure out how do you get those blockers out of the way so that they can do the right thing. And if you're good at listening to people, talking to people, asking questions, if you ask people questions, they will tell you amazing things. Mm -hmm. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of doing user testing, hundreds of hours just with Wachovia doing banking software testing. I never did a test where I didn't learn something really cool and interesting from just sitting and listening and watching somebody try to go through something. I mean, people are just amazing. <laughs> I love it. Randy Carter, that's a, a perfect place to take our commercial break. Uh, we'll be right back with Take a Moment. Hello, it's me again, Josh Reed. And in today's commercial break, we take a closer look at the topic of Genesis Cloud, previously Pure Cloud. During this episode, Randy talks about some of the capabilities of Genesis Cloud and how cloud is the future of contact center technology. To learn more about Genesis Cloud, check out the resources below on genesis.com. You can register to watch our monthly demos of Genesis Cloud functionality on demand at your convenience, watch the detailed introduction to Genesis Cloud featuring Randy, and see how Genesis customers are using the technology. And as always, thanks for listening. Make sure to click that subscribe button and stay tuned for the next episode of Take a Moment. We're back from our commercial break with Randy Carter. Randy, let me ask you, when it comes to Genesis Cloud and you being a part of that team that originated that or was the genesis of Genesis Cloud, if you will. Uh, right, I know. It was uh, the second. Uh, I actually uh, stole that from Mari. I stole yeah. that from Mari. It's a terrible yeah, yeah. joke that she made earlier. Uh, what are some things that you did, you and your team did, really, really well? What works really, really well? And where do you still want Genesis Cloud to go? One of the things that we did very differently is we thought about reports very differently. Instead of having this whole reports area where you're running reports and they're giant screens full of rows and columns of numbers, which is what everybody thought reports were, we said, well, hold on, what are we doing with that data? What, why do people want that report? And we looked at how they use that information in the tasks that they're trying to do. And we tried, we said, let's just put some of that data where they're making a decision so they have the thing that they need to know right there. And they don't have to alt tab between two different views and be looking at a report and then trying to understand which of these numbers is really important right. and remembering in their head, ah, what's the threshold for that? Okay, so it's above two, it's bad. If it's below two, it's good. Instead, we just put it right there in the screen. So you're looking at a view of how the queues are working and everything has actions associated with it. You need to drill down deeper, look at what's happening with individuals in that queue. You can do that. You want to move somebody, that individual, to another queue, you can do that. You want to go and start balancing you know, the, the teams, you can see exactly who's doing what as you're moving them and decide, okay, do it right now or wait until they finish their call. You've got enough information to really do smart things. And when the tool gives you enough information to make a smart decision, it really makes you feel great. 
know you're doing the right thing. Another thing we did is we're not data bound. As a designer that's worked in software and in technology my entire career, one of the things that you hear again and again and again is we don't have the data for that. And it's really, really frustrating because you can see all these opportunities when you're talking to customers or you're out there in their office watching them use something. You see these gaps that you could fill very easily if you only had two more pieces of data, but you don't have it because we had to be on a budget when we were building things that went into computers on desks or even you know in a data center. Um, you couldn't save everything, so you threw a lot of data away. So you could never get that data back. We don't do that in PureCloud. We saved every event that ever happened in the history of the world because data is pretty cheap and we store very compact things. And what that lets us do is when we get smarter, and that's sort of kind of an underlying theme of a lot of the decision-making, when we get smarter, <laughs> we can go back and fix that. When we get smarter and we come up with a new report we want to run, we can go back and we can replay all that history overnight and we can rebuild that the data that we're missing and put it into a reports database so that the next morning when that manager or supervisor whoever comes in and they and they open up that view and they see that new feature it's not just from then going forward which is how it always was before when you did an update it's it's also the entire history since they started their contract and that is amazing for ai and bot behavior because I've got all this history available that I can use to train those things, to do business simulations, to tell me what the trends are so that when I'm looking at future behavior, I have something really high fidelity to make estimates from, you know, as an AI. Right. Yeah. And where do you see Genesis Cloud going? What do you still want to accomplish? What do you see in the next year or two? The biggest thing is we just got to keep going. We got to keep doing what we've been doing. Don't stop now. There's a combination of small things we need to do and big things we need to do. And some of it also is just connecting the dots of what we already built better. I was talking to one of our sales consultants and he had a prospect that wanted to do in their business, they need to do support calls with more than three people. Like they like to do their calls with like four and five people. But that seems rational to me. And I know that there's no limit to the way that we built the communications architecture because we support conference calls with as many people basically as you want to add. So something else is going on. We just didn't put the button on the agent screen to keep adding people. The agents, we put in transfer. You could transfer it to another person and you could talk in a three-way call for a little while and then one person would hang up and you'd only have two again. But you couldn't add a fourth person. That's an example of connecting the dots that we already have. We just need to start going back. And now we've, we've built all of this great base functionality. Now is where we can really get creative with the pieces that we already have. And it's time to start putting some thought into that, I think. And that's, that's what we built. I think people really underestimate how much we thought about building a platform. And when you get Glenn Nethercut going on this, it's amazing. There's a great temptation when you're building software to kind of make compromises to get a feature done. And some people call it local optimization. And I, I had a, a partner in a design firm that I was in who had this saying, he said, local optimization always leads to chaos which is one of those great technologist conversations that nobody sure. outside of the technology world really gets. I don't know if I knew what <laughs> any of that sentence meant, so you want to unpack that. So, 
Um, so local optimization is kind of cheating. It's making a hack. It's saying, I'm just going to go, I'm not going to create the actual service that does that properly. I'm just going to put this chunk of code in the middle of this other chunk of code that doesn't really belong, but it does the thing that I needed to do because that's faster than doing it the right way. That's a local optimization. Shortcut. And it leads to sh- bugs and it, all sorts of things down the line. Oh, right? Down the line, you, you, and eventually you collapse. The, com- the, the development organization just keeps, as you, as you do additional releases, you lose people out of your development organization because you need them to be supporting this crufty code. And over time, that steals your productivity until you really can't move anymore. And then what do you do? You throw away the whole system and start again. The thing that never really has happened before is have a system where you're continuing to accelerate building features. And that's the most amazing output of this architecture that Glenn and those guys built is by keeping the right balance of going back and looking at the services and throwing away code, just like throwing away design concepts, they throw away code because they get smarter and they realize, ah, that should be in this other service. And now this guy, this guy, this guy needs to go do some refactoring because this service needs to be doing that instead. And the, the attitude on the developers is just so great about that because owning code sucks. You're the only one who understands what's going on in there. That's your job for the rest of your life, theoretically. Who wants that? I want something interesting to do, you know? So that's what we did. We, we, from the beginning, we knew we were building a platform because we knew that we didn't want to have to build and maintain all that code. We knew we would get smarter. We knew other people <laughs> would get smarter and they would build code and we would like it better than what we had built and we would want to swap it out. So we built a system that let us do that. I know you are a tremendous problem solver and you have this knack of observing something or a situation or a product and being able to, within moments, discern how it could be better. So here's my question to you, Randy Carter. Is there something that you experience on a day-to-day basis that maybe the rest of us experience as well? Maybe it's going to the store or going through the drive-through or conducting business at your bank. But like, is there something that you experience (laughs) every day and you look at it from the outside perspective with your Randy Carter eyes Uh, and you say, this experience for the customer would be so much better if they just, what is that that thing that pops into your mind and how could it be better? If you were given, like if you ran that particular zoo, whatever that thing is, what would you do to make it better? I try to be really, really generous when I come across those things, especially, especially being in the customer support software business. When I run into it as a customer support thing, I try to tell them, look, this could be so much better. Here's how you could make it better. And, and it would make your job better too. So maybe put that in the list and escalate it to your manager, because I know it's not your fault. Couldn't be. Why would anybody want to do that? But so, do you go to Starbucks and say that to the barista? I haven't at Starbucks. No. no, no. They have a pretty good system. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they, do. they actually do. But I'm not trying to you. be a Timmy. No, yeah. no, no, no. Starbucks <laughs> is definitely not a Timmy. They actually, you know, having worked for Starbucks in, a, in a, another life pretty extensively for a number of years, the systems that they have in place are actually pretty impressive right. because theirs but, is about that user experience. And but they probably didn't get it all that way. No, get it right didn't. the very first day. Certainly did. It not. takes a lot of work and a lot of right. iteration and a lot of, you know, seeing how it works and making it better. That's, Absolutely. That's how we do it. So every day I, I see two things in Microsoft Office 365 that make me roll my eyes. And they're two different things in two different parts. One of them is every time somebody sends me a link to a PowerPoint in SharePoint and I open it up in that view and I say, 
that's a really good PowerPoint. I want a copy of that. And I go over and I click on file and I click on download. I say, give me a copy of this thing. And then it goes off and it chews and it comes up and it pops up with a stupid dialogue and says, your download is ready. And if I don't ever do anything, I still don't get my download. <laughs> <laughs> just give me the prep and download. Instead and, of the same, it's right. <laughs> just don't tell, don't tell me you did some work. Just show me the work. Just, and let just it put up. the download. Give me the so darn if we download. go back to the Starbucks so, thing, it's like so. the barista saying, is there a Randy? Yes, your latte is ready. And then never giving it to yes. you. Yeah. Uh, another one is when you're in Outlook in the browser view, uh, it, it times out, which I, I totally get security and that things need to time out. What, what gets me is when it times out and rebuilds itself with the Microsoft happy, you know, kind of screensaver view screen with the landscape and it tells me, you've signed out. I didn't sign out. So, so, so I've learned to uh, a coping behavior to avoid seeing that screen, which is I close that window if when I reopen up my computer in the morning, if that window, that, that tab is still open, I close it. And then I go to the Microsoft Office tab and I reload that one so that I get a fresh cookie and then I click on the Outlook and it opens up the Outlook tab and then it gives me that message again. It, it opens up the Outlook and then it realizes, oh, I really should be closing and it closes and then it tells me you've signed out. What the heck? So if Bill Gates <laughs> comes to you and says, Randy, tell me how to fix it. What do you do? First of all, please, please change that message because it's it. I didn't do it. You guys did it. Some blame somebody else, but don't blame me. Um, don't blame the customer. <laughs> so, but the, yeah, we can be smarter about figuring out that I'm coming from a fresh cookie and not closing down something that I'm trying to open up when I just went to all that extra effort to, to fix it. If you want to be a designer and keep your sanity, you have to be able to hold a lot of contradictory things in your brain because the world does not make sense. And one of the things that doesn't make sense is people are so really, really good it, and it's a self-defense mechanism. Once we figure out a workaround to something, we don't even see the problem anymore. You may be wasting a half an hour a day on some stupid workaround. And you will, until somebody points it out to you again and they say, hey, why are you doing that? You won't think about it at all. Hmm. A lot of fundamental work that we depend on to do usability and user experience design actually is derived from early childhood development psychology by Conrad Lorenz and all of these kind of giants of the psychology world that did the early thinking. Like one of them is, is B.F. Skinner. And B.F. Skinner did all these experiments with, with rats and feeding them and trying to get them to do different behaviors. And one of the things he saw that happened was rats uh, don't always have a great sense of cause and effect. And so sometimes a rat would learn. To Not like always. It. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. You have really industrious Sometimes, rat yes. Like, sometimes. Oh, I totally get it. Yeah. Cause and effect. One. I get it. So, uh, and, and so sometimes a rat would, would spontaneously develop this behavior of like spinning around three times and then hitting the bar that's going to drop the food pellet and get them fed. And they would just keep doing that. And B.F. B. Skinner, he had a, another name for it, but in the psychology area, it's called a Skinner dance. The, this thing, this, the this, Skinner dance, the Skinner dance. And, and we're all Skinner dancing all the time as human beings. We see things and we get a bad cause and effect and we blame things on other stuff. And it's the whole correlation isn't causality thing. It's just amazing to me how we get through our days with all these coping behaviors. And yet we still continue to move the ball forward. And, and get stuff done. Even while Skinner dancing. 
Randy Carter, thank you so much for taking a moment with us. Uh, your insights into everything in the world are always very, very valuable. I wish we had three more hours to continue to pick your brain, but it's been an amazing, amazing time. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. <laughs>